Well, we are continuing to work our way through the book of Romans. Our goal is to get chapter one through chapter eight before the summer's over. Uh, And so if you want to, you can begin to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter three for today. If you don't have your Bible, we'd love for you to grab one off the back table. Free gift to you. We want you to be able to follow along well and to make notes as you go. I wanna give you a little insight into my sermon preparation. And so if I'm doing everything right, which happens like once every two months, um, I'll study a lot during the week and then I'll start writing Thursday, try to have that bad boy done by Friday. Um, And usually most days it goes into Saturdays. But uh, then Saturday evening, I like to preach my sermon, right? So I I think this is a a huge moment that we gather under the word of God and I wanna make sure as best to my abilities that you're not hearing from me, uh, that I can move out the stuff that was not from the Lord. And so I preach my sermon. My kids think it's super weird. My office is right next to my boy's room. They're always just like, dad's in there preaching to the wall. That's super strange. They'll probably grow up and be like, my dad was a weirdo, but that's okay. Uh, And then we come up here Sunday morning, we set up, you know, trying to get this bad boy set up by seven. Uh, I leave a little early and I go back and I preach it one more time. And this morning as I'm preaching through what we're gonna talk about today, um, man, there's this pivotal moment and change in Romans three that literally brought tears to my eyes this morning. Like it was a place of worship and adoration in my office, preaching a message to the wall. Um, Because what Paul has been doing is prepping us for this climatic change in the middle of chapter three. He has spent chapter one, two, and half of three trying to remind you and I that we are bankrupt spiritually and desperately in need of salvation, that we have no hope in and of ourselves, and that there has to be a better way. Someone has to step in and help us. And so in chapter one, he started talking about the pagans, which is really you and I, we're pagans, we're not Jews, right, Uh, by nationality. And so it's this idea that even those that weren't given uh, the Torah, those that weren't given the 10 commandments, hey, they're still responsible and held accountable to the wrath of God. Chapter two is now to this really religious and moral and uh, self-righteous Jew who did all the outward things that knew what the word of God said and yet still was far from the Lord, that they're still accountable to God's wrath. And then he's gonna go into chapter three and kind of just give his last exclamation point of going, I want you to feel the burden of your lostness and sinfulness so that the beauty of the gospel and the brightness of Christ and what he has done will shine brighter in your heart and life than it ever has before. And even this morning for me, I'm praying, I'm going, okay, Lord, like, this is my heart for us this morning. (laughs) It's that if you're in this room and you don't know Christ, that today will be that day where you go, I I want that. Like I see the beauty of Christ on display in a way that I never have, and I want that. And if you're in this room and you're going, I I follow Jesus, I know Jesus, that it would move you uh, to just a refreshing and a renewal and just just a desire to wanna lean in deeper to your walk with Christ, that it would again be of most important value to you and I that we would go, I'm gonna forsake everything else for the sake of glorifying my God and King, even if it's costly, because I see the beauty of Jesus. That's what Paul is trying to do for you and I. And so I'm excited, let's jump in then to chapter three. We're gonna break this into a few sections. Here's how Paul wants to finish his argument. He wants to give us rhetorical questions 
to prove how bad we need Christ, right? That's why you do a rhetorical question. It should be like blatant enough that you're like, it's dumb to even answer this because this question is so obvious. And that's what he's trying to do. Some of these are things maybe he had thought about on his own time. Others, he even tells us, these are questions I've heard asked of me, talked about me before. And so he's gonna tell us some things that hopefully leave us going, yeah, of course that's the answer. And then, oh, wait, that's me. I need Jesus. And so starting in chapter three in verse one through four, it says this. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So here's what he starts off with. He asked this first question. Is there any advantage to being a Jew or value in circumcision? Right, he just said, hey, look, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you've been circumcised. If, if you don't know the Lord, you don't know the Lord. You're still under his judgment. And so now the question's being asked, well, is there value in, really we could put it in today's terms, uh, growing up in the church, growing up in a Christian family, bringing your kids and your grandkids to the church, you being committed to the local gathering on Sunday mornings. He's going, is there value in just being a part of a church? And the answer is absolutely. <laughs> is there value in being a Jew and being circumcised? Absolutely. What does he say the reason is? Because you've been given the oracles of the Lord. He's going, man, there, there is value in your, you just being here today, whether you are a believer or not, because you are going to be under, we are going to be under his word, his truth. We're gonna be around people that are worshiping this God and King. We're gonna hear the testimonies of his faithfulness. And he goes, it's good for us. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Gospel Coalition. Uh, great website to check out, lots of resources, lots of articles. But they wrote an article uh, here recently just answering the question, is it a value for someone to attend church, non-believer or believer? Like, is there good that comes out of this for humanity? And here's what they found in their research, some of just the quick, fast bullet points. So this is people that have um, pretty normal church attendance, even if they're not a Christian. Less depression, 29%. Uh, less suicide, 84%. Less emotional pain medicators such as smoking and substance abuse. Greater social support. Greater meaning in life. Greater life satisfaction. More volunteering. Greater civic engagement. Children more likely to grow up happy. <laughs> Reduced risk of divorce by 50%. Reduced risk of adolescent illegal drug use by 33%. He's going, it doesn't matter if you even believe what is being taught at the church this is what's happening in people that are regularly attending church. And what Paul is trying to teach us is for you and I, what we do here, our commitment to the gathering, it, it's profitable and it's good. It doesn't save us, doesn't, doesn't get us out of the judgment of God, but it brings us to a place where we are hearing the truth of the word and it's, it begins to get in our hearts and our minds and we see salvation come. You know what's amazing to me? I look at this, especially like, hey, children more likely to grow up happy. I literally talked to my daughter last night, and she's going into sixth grade, so we were like, man, you're about to get to go into student camp next, you know, next year. You're gonna be seventh grader. You're gonna move out of the kids' wing, and you're gonna go to student students, and how crazy is that? 
And she goes, does that mean I have to go and like sit in on the regular worship service when you're teaching? And I was like, well, yeah, we don't have a lot for students, you know, besides coming and doing that. She's like, that sounds horrible. Uh, I was like, thank you, Hannah. You know how to make me feel awesome. She's like, I hear you all the time. I don't need to listen to you for an hour. And so what's funny to me though, right, is we go searching for the things that even are just like um, by general grace of God given to us in the gathering of people at church in a thousand other places. Some of us are highly concerned that our kids grow up happy and have all that they can and all these great opportunities that we never had. And so we go and we search after these things and we go, hey, the commitment to church will be secondary to these things. And and literally, they're going, just statistically speaking, even if your kid doesn't know Christ, they're gonna grow up more happy if they're in church every Sunday. That's crazy. You and I do the same. We go, man, my commitment level, level to the gathering, just, I, I've got all these, I want, I want self-satisfaction. I want, I want to be able to be more happy. I want to feel less sad. And he's going, go to church, and that literally just happens. Whether you believe what's going on there or not. It's amazing to me that Paul is saying, hey, look, there is great benefit in being a Jew, great benefit in being circumcised. There is great benefit benefit and your commitment to the local gathering. God will do a work in your family that you don't even realize will happen just because that's what he does. Washington Times, at the end of this article, how crazy is this? The Washington Times wrote this and they quoted it in the Gospel Coalition article. Regular churchgoers were the only segment of the population whose mental health actually improved in the pandemic. Now, not everybody's mental health in the church improved, but what it says is out of everybody in America, there was only one segment of people that actually improved during that time, and it was people regularly attending church. (laughs) It's amazing to me that there's just something so powerful about being in worship and being around the word of God that it just makes its way into our minds and hearts, even when we don't necessarily want it to. And so Paul goes, hey, listen, (laughs) is there profit? Absolutely. And then he says this, but what if, what if as a Jew, start in verse three, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. So, so now his next rhetorical question is, does a, Jew, uh, does a Jew lack of faith cancel out the faithfulness of God? And he says, absolutely not. And we see this over and over. Think of, I mean, from the very beginning, <laughs> Moses on the mountain getting the 10 commandments. What's happening on the bottom of the mountain? The, the people, the chosen nation of God goes, let's make a cow out of our earrings and worship that. Like day one, <laughs> it, it, it's been unfaithfulness. All the way to the point that the majority of this chosen nation was waiting for a Messiah. He came and now literally in Israel right now, they're still waiting for the Messiah. They missed Jesus. You talk about unfaithfulness. All of scripture, all of salvation history was God going, hey, Israel, I'm gonna send somebody and it's gonna transform everything. Be looking, be looking. Here's here's all the little things he's gonna do. And he came and they go, we're still waiting on the Messiah. And yet the Bible says God will remain faithful. We talked about it in Revelation. There's gonna be this day, even still, where God is gonna pursue the nation of Israel and save a multitude. Why? Because he's going to be faithful to his covenant commitment to his people. And here's what's amazing, church. If you are in Christ, the same faithfulness holds true for you and I. And I think if we're honest with our hearts and our minds, 
we, we don't quite grab great is your faithfulness in my life. And what do I mean by that? I think a lot of us tend to live our life in relationship with God kind of like the prodigal son, right? And we're going, hey, that dude ran off, was super unfaithful, squandered everything, like hey, he totally blew it. And so do you remember when he's with the pigs, what he says to himself? He goes, man, maybe I could go back to, the, to my dad and maybe he'll just like, I know I'm not a legitimate son anymore. I've like, I've, I've blown that. So maybe he'll just let me be like a hired hand and I can just hang around. And I think some Christians, maybe a lot of Christians, this is how we live our life. Like we, we mess up and we have sin and we see our unfaithfulness and our lack of real love for the Lord. And there's something in us that goes, I'm probably not a legitimate child of God anymore. Like, will you just let me come hang out? I know I'm not on the A list anymore. Can I just be on like the C list? <laughs> and what happens in the story of the prodigal son? The son comes back and the father embraces him and says, no, everything I have is still yours because I'm faithful to be your father. And I just wondered this morning if there's someone in this room that you need to be reminded that God is faithful even though you've been faithless. Even if you have run a thousand, direction, a thousand miles the other direction, he is pursuing you and waiting for you. And this is the goodness of God on full display. He is a faithful God. He's faithful to forgive and he's faithful to be just. And that's why they finished with this little quote out of uh, Paul uses Psalm 51. Look at the end of verse four. He says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. He's like, what if all the Jews just said, we don't even believe in this thing anymore? And then he quotes Psalm 51, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Psalm 51, if you're familiar, it is a prayer of David when Nathan comes in and says, hey, we know that you were the one that put Uriah on the front line and had him killed. We know that you were the one that committed adultery and you had an affair with this other man's wife and now you're trying to hide everything and pretend like it's okay. We know it and the Lord said you're gonna die. And then he's like, I need to write a prayer. And Psalm 51 comes out of that. And we get to this moment in Psalm 51 where we see this idea of God's faithfulness even when we are unfaithful. He starts right before this section and he, and he says this, he goes, against you and you alone have I sinned, O Lord. And then he says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. What, what David is saying is going, dude, you are just to pour out your wrath on me. Like I have sinned greatly. And you're just if you were to pour it all out and just be done with me. And yet, how does the Bible tell us David's life ends? What is he known as? A man after God's own heart. Why? Because God is faithful even when we are faithless. David repents and finds that forgiveness. The prodigal comes home and is still considered a son. And so Paul is saying, hey, listen, even when we are unfaithful, God is faithful. And it's the same for you this morning. And so he moves on, verses five through eight. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Verse six, by no means. For then how could God judge the world but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come as some people 
slanderously charged us of saying, their condemnation is just. Question three, since my sin shows off the grace and the righteousness of God, should I not just sin more? And he's going, this is so absurd. Their condemnation is just. I'm like, I'm not even gonna answer this. That, that you guys think I'm saying, you know what? God is faithful to the prodigal, so let's just go sin all the more so that the world goes, man, look how great his forgiveness is. I'm gonna live a life of sin so I can just magnify the glory of God's grace and kindness and mercy to me. He's going, it's ridiculous. I'm not even answering the question. And you and I, with that particular question, would go, absolutely, that's stupid. And yet, I think, maybe unknowingly, we, we 100% believe this at some level in our lives. And we live it out. And what I mean by that is we understand that God is love and we are forgiven and our destiny is sealed. And so what do we do? We begin to minimize our own sin. We begin to minimize the need for repentance and holiness. We begin to go, hey, you know what? I don't think this is that big of a deal. Like these are the little things that probably no one even knows about me or really cares. Does God even care at this point? Like I've done the big things that helped me fit in at the church at Wellspring. God doesn't really care about these other things. Does he really care that I got angry for a moment with my family last night? Does he really care that I have this little bit of jealousy towards somebody? Does he really care that my language is pretty coarse and not honoring to him? He doesn't really care about that. Does he really care that every now and again I drink a few too many beers and slip into that area that I'm like, oh, that was probably too much. Look, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not drunk. I'm just social drinking. Does he care? Does he really care that I overspend to help satisfy my heart? Like, I'm just buying stuff on Amazon. I'm, I'm, I'm actually really well off. I'm not even putting myself in debt. Does he really care that I work so much that it sacrifices my family? I mean, I'm trying to be a good parent. I'm trying to take care of and get us a, a, something in the end. Does he care about those things? Does he care that I have a, co a commitment to the church, really? Does the church really even matter? Like, this is about Jesus. And what Paul's trying to teach you and I is this. Are, are we to sin so that we can just show off God's forgiveness? No. And what he's trying to teach you is those small things that you and I probably just go, I don't, I don't even see these as a bad thing anymore, are the very things that Christ had to die for and bleed his blood for so that we might be called righteous. And Paul is... is it's saying, listen, I, I pour my, he says somewhere else in scripture, he says, I'm gonna pour my life out as a drink offering on the, on the altar of sacrifice for my king. And he said, I'm, I, I'm gonna live as best I can in a manner worthy of the gospel. What does that mean, that he's gonna live up to the standard where God was like, man, I'm glad I died for you. you you're getting it right. No, he's saying, I've been so radically transformed by the holiness and the beauty of Jesus that the spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead is living in me and transforming me, that I'm gonna live my life with a, a submission and a posture of going, I wanna, I wanna make you worthy. I wanna live worthy for you. And so he's going, yeah, let me have the little things because they still lead to a lot of death. <laughs> let me have the little things so you can be free to live a life that I've given you. He cares about the little things. And so let us not be the people that go, you know what, since I'm forgiven, does all this little stuff really matter to the Lord? It matters greatly. 
He continues on. This is his final appeal now in nine through 20. This is kind of his exclamation point on, we need a savior. <laughs> we should read this last part and go, I have no hope if Christ doesn't intervene. That's what he wants. And, and I love what one pastor said. He said, this next section is an x-ray into my heart. And it's an x-ray into your heart. Th this is the posture and position of every heart of humanity outside of the Holy Spirit making a change. And whether you wanna believe it about yourself or not, it doesn't matter because God said this is who you are outside of the Spirit of God. And here's what he says in verse nine. What then, are we Jews any better off? So he's going, okay, you grow up in the church. Are you any better off? No. <laughs> We're all under sin, Jews and Greeks. Verse 10, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. This is from Proverbs, this is from Psalms, this is a collection of Old Testament uh, scripture about who we are. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, and no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of an asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There are a few key words that we need to pick up on, church. None, all, everyone, no one. That's all inclusive. And this is vitally important to get us to a place where we see our desperate need for a savior. God says of you and I, not one of you does any good. Not one of you understands anything about me. Not one of you has ever sought after me outside of the Holy Spirit. No one does good. Verse 18, there is no fear of God in any person. So there's no, there's no feeling of conviction that leads to repentance in anybody. And so we need help because we're desperately lost without him. And here's the deal, church. This is why your understanding of how you became a Christian is massively important to the amount you will worship your king. If we can begin to understand that the Bible is saying this about us, then we can also understand then what is this salvation that he has brought? Because here's what it says, church. You and I didn't understand the things of God. That clicked in our minds because the spirit illuminated our heart and our eyes and our ears to go, I see clearly. Without that happening, you didn't understand. I didn't understand. It says no one sought after God. There was not this point in your life where you said, man, I'm kind of like seeking out the Lord. I kind of want to know about God. No, what it says is the Lord sought you out. No one seeks for God. No one. He sought for you. He says we didn't have any good in us to make right our brokenness. And so Jesus comes and does the ultimate good so that we can be made righteous. There's no conviction, there's no fear of God in us until the Spirit comes and all of a sudden you go, wait a second, the things that never bothered me in my entire life now bother me. Why? The Spirit came and convicted our hearts. Why does he do this? Because of his massive love for us. 
Here's what's amazing that we're gonna get to in a moment is that Jesus pursues after us. God pursues after us, seeks after us, gives us understanding and knowledge because of his great love for us. And it is in your worst moments of life. It's a radical love. It's a radical salvation. We don't play a part in this thing. We're gonna see it at the end. Paul's gonna go, who are you to boast in anything for your salvation? And so let's continue on. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. What was Paul's hope in just like doing the x-ray of our heart? That everybody would be quiet. That you would stop going, well, this is why I am the way I am. Or here's the things I've done good for myself. Or here's actually the reason why I'm following you. He goes, no, no one speak. Me, you, we're under this wrath and we got nothing good in us. We are hopeless outside of saving through Christ. Paul's desire is for there to be silence because he's about to tell us about the greatest news that the world's ever seen. It says, and the whole world may be accountable to God. I love this last part, verse 20. For by works of the law, to human being, uh, no human being will be justified in his sight. So what that's saying is, hey, Jew, doesn't matter that you know the Torah. It doesn't matter that you went to the rabbinical school. It doesn't matter that you've been circumcised. It doesn't matter that you go to the temple and worship. It doesn't make you right with God. Insert Christianity today. It doesn't matter that you've been baptized. It doesn't matter that you went through some confirmation class. It doesn't matter that you were a part of VBS. It doesn't matter that you do all the things that Wellspring says, hey, this is what a good covenant member looks like. It doesn't save you. It doesn't make you right with Jesus. Only Christ and faith is what makes you right. And here's what I love. He finishes, he says, since through the law comes knowledge of sin, He's saying the more that you and I learn about this and who he is, really part of its purpose, yes, is to live that out and to pursue that, but part of his purpose is for you and I to more and more realize how sinful we are. <laughs> like his goal is going, hey, I brought this standard of who I am, my righteousness, my holiness, so that when you look at your life, you'll really begin to go, I'm in worse shape than I was. I'm now more aware of the deeper my sin was before I studied. In fact, my kids are in this state right now, and if you've got kids or had kids, you probably understand this. Like, there's moments right now where your kids will say things that are like highly embarrassing and offensive to other people, and they have no idea that it was, right? You're like, oh my gosh, you're, baby, you're not allowed to say that. That's horrible. Like, that just hurt that person's feelings. You can't say that, right? And, and, and so I'll see this in my own kids. They'll, they'll say something, I'll, I'll pull them aside, like, what are you doing? You can't do that. And there's instant, like, guilt and shame, right? There's this instant, like, I had no idea that was bad. And now you've told me, like, you've, you've shown me that that was actually sinful as well. And I did not mean to do that. Like, the more they learn about what it means to live right, the more they realize I'm failing Further and further, I can, there was a moment in my life that still sticks out to me. I was probably seven years old, and yet this is just like, I can remember it like it was yesterday. Um, it was my dad's side of the family. The whole family had gotten together. I don't know if it's, a, it's a, obviously some holiday or something. We all went out to eat at this restaurant, and, uh, and I'm sitting by my aunt. And if you're listening, I'm, I'm really sorry still to this day that I said what I said when I was seven. And, and I'm looking at my aunt, and in my little kid mind, I'm going, man, she has got a lot of makeup on her face. It's like, there's just tons of it. It's like, I can see where it stops and starts. 
And so in my little seven-year-old mind, with no desire to be mean, I was like, Aunt Gayla, you look just like a clown with all that paint on your face. And then literally my parents, right, are like, I get the squeeze of death, like, what are you doing? And like, in that moment, right, I still remember as a kid, like, holy cow, I just learned something else of where I have failed and fallen short. And God's going, look, this is what the law should do to us. There should be a side of us that as we continue to know who the Lord is and what he requires, we go, oh man, I messed up again and I failed again. And that's good for us, church. It's good for us to know how broken we are because then we will elevate our Savior at a different level. And so Paul has put this exclamation point on our depravity and our need for him. And then finally he shifts gears. Like, can you imagine being uh, the Roman church that got this from Paul? And you're like, hey, Paul wrote us a letter. Let's, let's sit down and read this together. And you're like, oh, this is, this, is, this is pretty bad. I don't know. I don't know. Do we want to go any further? I don't know. Like, everybody's like, what is happening? Stop talking, Paul. And then finally he gets to 21. And we see this massive shift. They were moving from this darkness to the brilliance of the gospel. And he says, but now... <laughs> But now, even though I've just told you how depraved you were, how much wrath is on your life, how you are lost and without hope, there's something different. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This righteousness of God is this standard at which he's been telling us we couldn't meet. This perfection and this holiness. He's saying now it can be yours in Christ through faith. You can be deemed as holy and righteous through belief in Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. He goes, this is, this is where new identity is found. And so he says, continues on in 22, but there's no distinction, which I, I love this, right? He just spent three chapters going, there's no distinction. Everybody's under the wrath of God. And now he's going, and you know what? There's no distinction in his saving grace and love for humanity. The same people that you can't stand and you have anger issues towards and you look at their life and go, it's disgusting. The Lord says, I love them greatly. I have no distinction of salvation for any human being, and I want you to be my mouthpiece for them. Show them love like I've shown you because you're no different. There's no distinction, no race, no creed, no socioeconomic status, no amount of sin or heinousness. There's no distinction. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And then we get these, how this plays out in verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It is to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There are three words in this moment that some of you are really familiar with and some of you have no idea what they mean. And regardless, I wanna give us some fresh definitions. What is faith in Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection? What does this receiving of the righteousness of God really play out in our lives? 24 tells us, and are justified by his grace as a gift. So this first 
word is justified. This is this gift that he gives. You couldn't earn it, couldn't deserve it, couldn't work for it, couldn't merit it, but he says you're justified. And so what is the definition of justification? Justification, here's maybe a new definition for you, same meaning. It is God in heaven declaring that you and I in Christ are perfect and righteous. It's his declaration that you are perfect. You are holy. You are righteous. This is what justified means. Him declaring over us a new identity. But not just that, church. It's deeper than that. Justification is not just that he declares that we are holy and righteous and sinless, but now we are treated in that regard. You know who the only person that was holy, righteous, and sinless was? It was Jesus. And so what he is telling you and I is not only do I declare this over you, but now I'm going to treat you as I treat Christ, as my son, as my daughter, forever faithful, unchanging, more love and faithfulness than you could ever fathom. You're mine. This is justification. So he says, there's no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. The next is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That next word is redemption. And we see this biblical term throughout uh, scripture and it, it carries with it this idea that someone with the means purchases a slave's freedom. Okay, paying the price of a slave to now go free and live their life. And so part of our salvation, part of the hope is not only did Jesus declare over us, you're holy and you're righteous, but he was willing to pay a price to redeem us, to purchase us out of slavery. But there's this little part that I think we forget that also goes with redemption. It also holds with it the idea that I, I am purchasing because I have the means a slave so that they can go free because I value them and I love them. I see their value and I love them and I'm willing to pay this price for them. How amazing. As, as we jump through the x-ray of our heart and literally those moments in your life where you were like, I would be terrified if the people of the church knew this about my inner thought life or my actions. In those moments, your worst moments, he's going, I see you as valued, and I love you, and I'm gonna pay a price to redeem you. That is an extravagant love that we can't comprehend. And then the last word is propitiation. He continues on, he says, we've been redeemed, that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This last word, propitiation, kind of the easy de definition is it's appeasing the wrath of an offended party, okay? We just spent three chapters, Paul saying, we are under the wrath of God rightly. And now he goes, but in Christ, you can be declared righteous and perfect. You can be treated that way. He, he saw the value and loved you so greatly that he paid a price for you that you couldn't pay. And now he has appeased the wrath. But there's another side of this. Propitiation also carries with it not just the appeasing of wrath, but a reconciled relationship. And so what's, what's different in this? It's kind of like those moments in your life where maybe someone has wronged you greatly and you had kind of a just anger, a just like, I'm done with you in my life feeling. 
and you knew that the Lord said you gotta forgive, right? You don't wanna be bound to your anger and your hate, and so you go and forgive that person. You make right, but you're also like, I don't like you, and I'm never gonna talk to you again, but I forgive you, right? That, that happens. <laughs> that, that, that's half a propitiation. Like, I'm gonna forgive you, I'm gonna go my own way now, but I don't like you. The other half of propitiation is it, it, so radical, it is God going, I, I've forgiven you, the, the wrath has been taken off of you, and now I'm going to make you my closest companion. In fact, Jesus says he makes us his bride. <laughs> it, it is a picture of God and your dirtiest, most horrible, my dirtiest, most horrible moment saying, I love you, I value you, I'm gonna pay the price, I'm gonna call you righteous, and I'm going to make you my bride. I'm gonna love you forever with a covenantal, unbreaking love. And all of this, first half of Romans 3, no one seeks, no one cares, no one's turning to God. And he comes and he pursues, as he said, you're mine. This is the, the beauty of God's love on full display. Paul has longed to paint a really dark picture for us so that maybe even, even though we've been Christians for a long time, this would shine really brightly in our hearts and souls this morning. That he calls you righteous. He calls me righteous. Perfect. He's made me his bride. He's faithful. And he's gonna be faithful forever. And so Paul says, that's what makes him just. <laughs> He gets to be just in his judgment because he's provided a way and he gets to be the justifier of those who trust in Jesus. And he finishes then with something very important. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? <laughs> last last uh, rhetorical question. Do we get to boast in our salvation? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works, he's going, did you work for this? Is there any moment of any point of your salvation where you did anything? No. He said, instead, what? By the law of faith. <laughs> for we hold that one is justified, declared righteous and holy, and treated that way by faith, apart from works of the law. He's going, doesn't matter that you were circumcised, doesn't matter that you know the Torah, doesn't matter that you go to church, it's not what made you justified, it's Christ alone and faith in him, which the Bible says is a gift from God, not of ourselves. <laughs> he gave us the faith to trust in him. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. He's going, man, since we've been justified by faith, do we just put out the oracles of God, live how we want, live as the prodigal son, put his grace on full display by our sinfulness? No, he's going, man, we, we bow down and worship and we do whatever it takes to honor our God and King because he has saved us and loved us when we were unlovable and unsavable. The definition of boasting, the simple definition, I have it for you. 
boasting, to praise oneself extravagantly in speech and to speak of oneself with excessive pride. That's the definition of boasting. Paul's going, do you have any room to boast? Absolutely not. And you know what? 95, maybe 99% of us in this room know we're not supposed to do that. And so we don't. But you know how we boast instead? Is we begin to point out everyone else around us failures. We begin to belittle everyone else around us because that shows actually, look at our level of spirituality. I, I can't believe they call themselves Christian and are gonna do these things. Can I tell you, if everyone around you is an idiot, you're the problem, okay? If everyone around you is sinful and a horrible Christian, you're the problem. We don't have any room to boast. Our boast is in Christ alone. That's why Paul said, I'm gonna make my boast in Jesus. Look, look what happens to this definition when we, when we put Christ in the boasting instead of us. To praise Christ extravagantly in speech. To speak of Christ with excessive pride. Paul understood the depths of his wickedness and sinfulness and that he was hopeless and that Christ stepped in. And God declared him righteous and holy and treats him that way. That he redeemed him with a price he couldn't pay. And that he made him his bride and he said, man, I will boast in Christ alone. And so here's my hope for us this morning as we respond. For me, the conviction from my heart, what I, and what I hope is yours is like, there should be something in us as the people of God that when we are reminded of the basic gospel, it should stir up our desire to wanna love and worship and obey the Lord. It should do something in us to recenter and reorient our priorities. That should be happening in us this morning when we hear this. And I would go as far to say, if it's not, you may have never experienced it before. You may not have a good grip on who you were outside of Jesus. And so I think our first response as believers is going, man, what does it look like to reorient towards him? For him to be our first love again. And then lastly, is, is, if you're in this room and you don't know Jesus, I, man, my prayer has been for you today that the glory and the beauty of Christ would shine like diamonds on the, on the backdrop of a black cloth. So you need to go, I gotta have that. I, I, I want to be declared righteous and holy. I want to be the bride of Jesus. And man, it's available today in Christ. Let's pray. And so, God, we are humbled by your scripture this morning. God, I'm humbled in my brokenness and my sinfulness that you declare me righteous and holy. In my darkest moments, you saw value and loved me to pay a price I couldn't pay. And that you call me yours forever. And so, Lord, I pray that that would move us to worship. I pray it would move us to obedience. I pray it would move us to quit playing games with the little things in our life that we go, man, this is just baby stuff and baby sin that doesn't matter. I pray that we would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. 
And God, I pray this morning, if someone doesn't know you, that today, (laughs) that they would experience a love and a grace and a mercy that you have afforded them through Jesus in a way they've never experienced. And so you have your way in us. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.